Good. Thanks for joining us today at Launch Point Church in Lebanon, Tennessee. We believe the Bible is the written word of God without error and useful for every part of our lives. We believe that through learning and teaching of the word, others might come to know God, find freedom, discover their purpose, and make a difference. Good evening. I appreciate y'all being here. I joined Pastor Leonard in making you welcome. I hope that you are. We are in Colossians chapter 2, so if you want to go ahead and turn there. Um, Pastor Gary brought us a good teaching last week, um, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get into chapter 2, and I appreciate that. I, I, I'm going to get into chapter 2, though. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do an exegesis of the verses 1 through 5. Um, because I want you to hear the heart of Paul in regard to the Colossians. And in fact, that's what I've called or titled this lesson, if you're taking notes, the heart of Paul towards Colossians, towards the Colossians. Um, you don't have to get far into these verses to understand who, who, who Paul was. Let, let me explain. I'm going to go ahead and read them, and then I'll, I'll read back again when necessary. But verses 1 through 5 read like this. It starts like this in chapter 2. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf. And for those who were at Laod, Laodicea, that's, that's a sister church of the Colossian church, and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ Jesus, or Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. Amen. So, let me... You don't have to dive deep into this text to see Paul's heart. Paul's heart is a pastor's heart. Um, and what I mean by that is he is, according to this text, he struggles for the people of God. Uh, I, I don't necessarily say this for your sake, but there are people that listen to the recording. I would tell you, if you ever find yourself sitting under a pastor that doesn't struggle for you, that doesn't fight for you in the prayer room, that doesn't stand beside you and encourage you, you need some. You need to go sit somewhere else. Because if you're not sitting under someone that's willing to literally pour themselves out in service to you by pouring themselves in service to the king, then you're in the wrong place. You don't have a pastor. You have a teacher or somebody trying to line their own pockets or something like that. Paul had the heart of a pastor. Amen. And a pastor is a shepherd. So he wanted to love them. He wanted to make sure that they were taught well, that they were taken care of, that they were provided for, that they were nurtured, that they were um, brought back to health. All of these things is what a shepherd does, not just teaching. And so a pastor isn't a teacher. A pastor is also a teacher. Everybody okay? And so I think that's important here because it sets the tone for who Paul is and why he's having this discussion in the first place. So he says, I struggle for you. What does that mean? If you'll look that word up, and I don't do a lot of word studies just because most of them are nonsensical and don't, make, don't really matter. But if you look that particular word up, it means to be in agony. The Greek word is where we get the word agony. So he's saying, man, I agonize for you. I've never even met you. 
but because I know Christ loves you, because Christ died for you, because Christ poured himself out for you, Christ agonized spiritually and physically for you, it's my place if I'm going to ask you to follow me as I follow Christ, to walk as Christ walked. Amen? And so he agonized. I want you to understand it's not a struggle like a, ah, oh, that was tough. He, I, I am certain that he, he was up nights crying and weeping and praying for and believe in God to give provision to and clarity to and understanding to the people that they might know Jesus. He, he wasn't at all interested in puffing himself up or in creating or enlarging his platform. He just agonized for them to know Jesus. Amen. And man, it's, if I, I pray that every church in America, every church around the world is led by someone who agonizes for the people because that's what Paul did. Amen? And that's what Christ did for us. And so as such, Paul felt obligated to do the same. It means he underwent great mental anguish through worry. That's the definition of agony. And of course, we hear worry and we're all, oh no. Listen, he didn't let his faith waver but he was concerned with them because the world was coming against them. You guys are familiar with why this text was written in the first place. It's important, and it's the reason why I start when we do exegetical studies through letters or books or epistles or whatever, that I start with who's he writing to, why is he writing to them, when's he writing to them, all these kinds of things, because you have to then overlay that information over everything that he says. And so... We know that he was writing to them because there was people that were speaking false truths, lies to them about their spirituality, that they were believing that they were less because they didn't have whatever these false teachers were telling them they should have, that only they had. And so they needed to know that Jesus is enough, that Jesus plus nothing is exactly what we're looking for. And because they weren't receiving that information, he hurt for them. Everybody all right? And so we see over and over and over in the in Paul's letters his his heart exposed, his his desire for them. And Second Corinthians three two, he talks to them like like true friends. He says, "You are a letter written on our hearts, known and read by all men." He he kept them in his heart. It says, our mouth was spoken, has spoken freely to you, or Corinthians. Our heart is open wide. Now, if y'all know anything about the Corinthian church, man, they, if there's ever a congregation he slapped upside the head, that's it. Certainly in the first letter to the Corinthians. But he says, listen, my heart is open wide to you because I don't want you to walk in that. I struggle. I agonize over your torment. I agonize over your lack of control and order and all of these things that aren't reflecting the Christ likeness that you should be. He had a heart for them. Second Corinthians 12, 15, at the beginning of that verse, it says, I will most gladly spend and be expended for your soul. What? Isn't that beautiful text? Listen, it's, it's not just the heart of a pastor. It should be the heart of every person in every church in America that I am willing and gladly spend and expend my life for you. But you know what, Mike? You should be able to say the same thing about Chuck. Chuck should be able to say the same thing about Wendell and on and on and on. Spend and expend. 
That's the heart of love that we should have for one another. Second or Philippians 1.17, it says, For it is only right for me to feel this way about you, because I have you in my heart. Now, I don't, I don't want to beat this to death. I, I don't need to, I don't think. It's very apparent he is struggling for them in this first verse. And I, I want you to feel his heart so that you can understand the three things because of his heart that he desires they walk in, which is what I'm going to talk about tonight. And so that, that first thing, and let me add too, it says, even though you haven't seen my face, we should be praying for, loving people we've never met. Because in the spiritual realm, if I pray for someone that I'm not in the presence of or never even met, like the, the like Israel or the church in Africa, we're in the same room praying the same prayers in front of the same mighty God in the spiritual. We should agonize for them. They are brothers and sisters. This isn't terminology we use flippantly. You are my brother and my sister. I don't care what part of the globe you come from. Jesus Christ, by the plan of God, died so that you might have eternal life. And the fact that you don't or haven't received the message or haven't accepted the message or even heard the message should frustrate us to the degree where we cry out and be willing to spend and expend ourselves for the sake of their soul. That's why missions is so important, right? Because it allows me, even though I may never meet them, to physically show the agony I have over the condition of their soul. Isn't that good? That's good. Anyway, let's, so there's three things that he wants for them from that pastor's heart. And the first one is to be encouraged. In 2A, he says this. He says that their hearts may be encouraged. What does that mean? What is encouragement? To be encouraged literally means to be infused with courage. Remember why he's writing this letter. I'm going to ask you over and over through this whole series, overlay the why. False teachers are in the church. He's trying to infuse, he desires that he agonizes over the fact that they need to be infused with courage. Why does the church need to be infused with courage? That's a good question. Not just the Colossian church, but this one. The reason is, is because we struggle and need courage to stand firmly as we should. Standing in today's society is tough. To be able to say I'm a Christian outside the walls of this church or outside the circles that we've created or whatever, man, that's not an easy thing. It takes courage to do that. We have to be able to say, I don't care what you say. I don't care what you think. You're wrong. It's Christ plus nothing. The only thing that I have to have to be saved is grace by faith in Christ alone. Amen? That according to Ephesians what? Anybody know? It is by grace, through faith, in Christ Jesus alone. That's it. Anybody that wants to add anything to that is trying to mess you up. But you know what you can't do until you get yourself encouraged, until you surround yourself with people of courage, you can't walk in courage. I love Pastor Leonard, man. If you talk to him for more than two minutes, he's going to say, can I encourage you to do something? And then he'll tell you something that you should be doing. 
At first, I, I didn't like that. I'll be honest with you, Pastor Leonard. I didn't like that. I, was, I think one time I even asked him, I said, by encourage, you mean you like, you're going to encourage me, like make me feel good, lift me up, or you're going to tell me I need to be doing something I ain't doing? You know? And the answer to that question is yes. Both of those things. Because you need to know that I'm lifting you up, that you are solid, that you are good, that, that I appreciate you. But at the same time, you're lacking right here. So let me infuse you with courage so that the ground around you stops shifting so much. The reason people move and do all the stuff that they do is because they haven't gained a courage to have confidence that the ground they're standing on isn't going to move out from under them. Jesus Christ is the rock we stand on. The Bible tells us that God will shift everything else. He will move everything else except for who you are in Christ Jesus because he is a jealous God. He desires a relationship with you more than any other thing. And so he is going to literally burn away, according to the word of God, as an all-consuming fire, anything that stands between you and the stability that you should have in him. But let me tell you, that takes courage to stand in that because we still live in the physical. We still dealing with the stuff that we deal with. But the quicker we can get a hold of this, man, the easier it's going to be to be courageous. Amen. And so I just, I want us to get a hold of this. And so we ask the question, well, how can I know that I'm good? Then my ground isn't moving. I mean, let's face it. That's the question we ask ourselves, right? right. How do I know I'm saved? Can I encourage you? You like that? <laughs> Can I encourage you? Read 1 John chapter 5. There you go. Over and over and over and over. And here's why. Chapter 5 verse 13 reads like this. This is the thesis for the whole chapter or this section of the letter because the chapter wasn't there. For this, this section of the letter, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. That's the whole reason why he wrote this section of the letter, so that if I take what he's about to say, filter it over my life, I can know that I have eternal life. And the only way to eternal life is through Christ Jesus. And so if I want to say, I know that I'm good, how can I know that Jesus is enough and that I've accepted him and I'm good? Read 1 John chapter 5, and you'll find 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 7 K-N-O-W's between there and the end of the chapter. But it's, it's important that we understand if you don't have the courage... This is where you can find it. This is the only way you can find it. This is the only place you're going to find it. Be encouraged. Make sure that the ground that you're standing on is stable. Everybody good? Why does your ground need to be stable other than your own security and identity? Because like them, we're fighting false teachers everywhere we go. And so I have to know that my ground is solid. I have to be able to stand firm so that I can stand against. Somebody ought to write that down. That's good. I got to stand firm so I can stand against because the world will, is coming against us and telling us that biblical truth isn't true, that 
truth is somehow subjective to personal opinion or emotion or feeling. Let me tell you, that's not true. The truth is the word of God, yes. period. That's not popular, but I don't care if it's popular. And I'm not, I'm not being that brash guy. I just don't care if it's popular. You know why? Because I'm not big enough to exclude it. I'm not big enough to stand outside of the truth and claim my own truth. Only God has the authority to do that. And so I, I worry about my grandkids. If I don't stand, and I put this on Facebook earlier today, the fight for truth is the fight of our lifetime. Do you hear what I'm saying? Every other thing that's going on in society is because we have wavered the boundaries of the truth to suit our own needs. Everything, abortion, homosexuality, any type of sinfulness, we have determined to establish truth based on our feelings and our emotions, and that's not the standard. And the, my grandchildren's generation, their generation after that, will sit and suffer under the consequence of my cowardice or my courage. And so the question is, am I going to be a coward today so that they can walk in the truth of tomorrow? Or am I going to settle myself by being encouraged so that I can stand against those that would destroy not just me, but them? Amen? So Paul, man, from a heart of a pastor says, you get these people out of the church. They, they're messing you up. They're not telling you the truth. And that's not popular, right? Because we're all... Man, everybody's all, yay, man, right on. Until I say, and I've said this from this pulpit, y'all don't need to be listening to Bethel music. Now, oh, I like Bethel worship music. What's the problem with Bethel worship music? problem with Bethel worship music is that it comes from a, a seed that's spoiled and rotten. It's, it's raised up out of witchcraft. If you'll do any research into Bethel Church organization, you're going to find witchcraft. You're going to find drunkenness. You're going to find adultery. You're going to find all of these things. And anything that's produced from that fruit is bad fruit. Amen. And so you're all, but the theology of the song is good. That's great. What I want you to do is take your 10-year-old pliable grandchild, submit them to that music, let them get interested in that music and then go research the church that wrote that music and they get wrapped up in the idolatry and the witchcraft that that church is mixed up in all because you had a pet preference for your worship. Whoa. Now I done started stepping on toes, right? But it's true. Do not even put on the garment of the false teacher. Amen. So anyway, he wants us to be encouraged, not all, but infused with courage because so many people want to stand against what the word of God says. I'm going to give you three sets of texts. If you want to read them, you can, but here they are. Well, I'm going to read them. Acts 20, 29 through 30. I know that after my departure, this is Paul and different folks talking about Paul, Peter, and Jude talking about the false teachings in the church and what, what damage they can do if we aren't willing to stand firm. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. That's exactly what's happened in the church of Colossians. It's exactly what's happening in today's church. Isn't it crazy that we're all, man, the generations are getting worse and worse. No, they're just getting different. 
The evil still exists the same. It's just a different look. It's got a different avenue to get to you. They didn't have TV back then. You have TV. They didn't have laptops. You have laptops. But the evil still exists as the evil it's always been. Yeah. All right, calm down. Not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves, men will arise, serve, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. That's the number one motivation for false teaching. To draw away disciples to follow them, to increase their platform, their pocketbook, their influence. And let me tell you, it's not godly. If a platform, pulpit, or otherwise speaks anything other than very clearly that Without Christ Jesus, we are nothing, but with Christ Jesus, we have everything. They are false teachers. Yep. And then 2 Peter 3.17, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. Pay attention. Be encouraged yourself so that you might stand against. And then in Jude... We don't read enough Jude. Three and four, it says this, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you, Jude was trying to write them a letter of encouragement. Like, like actually, hey, you just want to love on you for a minute. He said, while I was making every effort to write to you about common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. He said, I just wanted to tell you about Jesus. But the Holy Spirit won't even let me tell you about Jesus because you're so mired in everything else. That you're so dissuaded by false teachers and the people that you've surrounded yourself with, you can't even hear Jesus right now. So let me correct you. It's a big deal. Be encouraged. Amen? All right. Next thing he wants us to know and, and them to know, and by proxy us, is to walk in love. Two B, verse two B that is, says this. He says that your hearts be encouraged, having been knit together in love. Now I'm going to say this first. Without Christ Jesus, there's nothing to knit to. We are, we know love, have love, are capable of love because of Christ Jesus. We are able to love one another because of the one spirit that it was in with all was within all of us one spirit one mind one heart one soul all of those things there is a spirit of love that allows us and that spirit is Christ Jesus to love each other well if Jesus had have imparted love to us we wouldn't know what love is everybody okay but can i tell you let's i want to use this verse in context he is talking about love, but he's talking about being knit together in love. We're knit together initially in Christ Jesus. But listen to me. He said that we're knit together in love. Knit. Everybody say knit together. What does that mean, Pastor Jim? Well, let me tell you what that means. It means knit together. That they become one. That they coalesce as a single unified element. So he's saying, this is like, I want you to be unified in love. Unified. Everybody say unified. Because we have to be unified in love if we're going to walk in love. I have to be able to knit my heart to yours. And in order for me to knit my heart to yours, you have to have the same heart that I have. 
or my heart will be corrupted. I, I was writing this and I was reminded of David when David crossed the Jordan to meet the mighty men for the first time. It says this in 1 Chronicles 12, 17. He says to them, and he's probably pretty freaked out because these guys had a reputation. He goes, if you have come peacefully to help me, my heart shall be united. The King James Version says, knit with yours. I'm going to sow my heart to yours. We're going to become one. That's what Paul's saying. Stand together in love, holding truth, the gospel message of Jesus Christ, and don't let anything else in because of the love that you have for one another. Amen? But then he says this. I love this because that's only half of it. He issues a warning to them. David does. He says, but if you betray me to my adversaries... Since there is no wrong in my hands, may the God of our fathers look on it and decide. That's a fancy way of saying, but if you're not here for me, if you're here for any other reason to knit your heart to mine, then to walk in love with me, to coalesce with me, I'm going to turn you over to the judgment of God and let God deal with you. And we need to be bold enough to do that. We get so concerned with how big the church is getting that we refuse to tell people that. I love you. And I'm going to stand next to you and I'm going to knit my heart to yours. But if you prove to me that your heart is in knit to mine, I'm going to release you and I'm going to ask God to judge you. I'm going to release, Paul said to the Corinthian church, he said, I'm going to release them to Satan so that they might ultimately come back to God so that everything be stripped of that. But the church doesn't do that anymore. We don't practice church discipline because we're afraid we're going to hurt somebody's feelings because we're worried about the church getting too small. Well, what if they leave the church or they leave? They bring their resources with them? Who cares? My concern is to agonize over their soul, not their resource, not what they can bring to the church because the only thing they're going to bring to the church if they're not knitting their heart to ours is destruction. Amen? And if you have enough fortitude to tell those people you need to go away, the Bible says don't even eat with men like this. I want you to get your head around that. He's saying, I don't even want you to, I don't even want you to go down to Applebee's with them. You know what that means? That means once somebody is identified like that and they have been removed from the church because we walk in love here, we ought to put their picture on our front door and say, not today until the Spirit of God deals with them. Well, that's not very loving. No, that's the only loving thing you can do for someone that's not willing to knit their heart to yours according to the Word of God and defile the truth. Amen? So walk in love is less about just this feeling of, oh, God, so good. Let's just love each other. This hippie weirdness that churches become. And it's about holding each other accountable. It's about loving enough to, to declare the same purpose, which is to glorify God. That's our purpose. My love for you is such that my primary drive is to tell you about Jesus. Amen? but I also have to love you enough to care enough to correct you. Galatians 6.1 says, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore one in a spirit of... Anybody know what the word is? Restore one in a spirit of what? 
gentleness. Each of you looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Now that's important. Because there's a process before you go putting their picture on the door. You got to say, listen, man, I love you. But I love you enough to tell you where your at's jacked up. And sometimes that means I love you and I've been where you are. Don't correct them. Please listen to me. Don't correct them unless you're willing to sit with them first. Because when you sit with them, they're correctable. But ultimately, you have to get to a place where you do whatever is necessary to protect the integrity of the truth of the message. And that requires a love that most of us, a lot of us, struggle with. But we also have to love them enough to protect them and, or protect the integrity of the gospel. Amen? And finally, we have to love them in a way that provides for them and provides for the household of faith, which is sacrificial. It costs us something. Sometimes it hurts a little bit, but it hurt Jesus, so it's okay. You're not suffering anymore than he suffered. And we have to start here in this house, just like Paul started in the... Colossian church and this letter was then passed to Laodicea because they they were a sister church and it, he, he named them so I'm sure I can't say that for sure they, this letter probably made their, its way to them because he was struggling for them too anyway so verse 11 in Galatians chapter 6 he says in, ver, in Galatians 6.10 he says so when while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people and especially to those who are in the household of faith. But I want to draw a particular attention to verse 11. And he says this. Well, I had to find it. Hold on one second. Y'all still with me? Galatians 6, 11 says this. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. You guys ever write a letter to somebody and then in the middle of that letter, if you really want to express a point or your passion or your love or your concern, you capitalize the whole sentence right in the middle of all this non-capitalized stuff. That's what he's saying. Listen to, just look at the size of the words I'm using because I can't express tone and text. At least I can make the text big enough for you to understand my passion. Take care of each other, love each other, hold each other accountable for Speak the same message. Walk in unity. Walk in love. That's what God wants for us. That's what Jesus died for us to have. And that's what the heart of a pastor desired for the Colossian church. Amen? So why? Why does he want them to walk in courage? Why does he want them to walk in love? And the rest of this text, 2C through 5, explains why. So that they might walk in the full assurance of Christ Jesus. 2C through 5 says this, resulting, I'm sorry, and attaining all the wealth that comes from, do you know there's a wealth in knowing Jesus? Beyond money, beyond anything, there's just a, a beautiful assurance, comfort, and peace that, that money came by. But he said, he continues, 
He said, attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, having that comfort and that peace resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery. Anytime we see mystery in the Bible, we get all freaked out. We're like, oh, what's he saying? It's very simple. Christ Jesus. Why is Christ Jesus a mystery? Christ Jesus is a mystery because we don't understand why he did what he did. But we walk in faith that he did it. Amen. And so he desires, I desire that we walk in a, Paul desired that we walk in the full assurance of what Christ did. But that's not just a, can I tell you faith? This may mess some of y'all up. Faith isn't just a spiritual position. It's an intellectual position. You have to engage your brain. If you say, I blindly have faith, then you probably don't have faith. You have to, the Bible proves itself over and over and over intellectually and spiritually. And if God decided to show us intellectually and spiritually that he exists, we should engage our intellect and our spirit in proving that he exists. Amen? And so I think it's beautiful what this mystery, the mystery that can be known, we should know intellectually. Thus, the spiritual, the things that we can't know, we should have faith in spiritually. But let me tell you, 1 Timothy 3.16 is the first, as far as I know, probably the first real hymn that was written and sung in the New Testament church. It reads like this. By common confession, you know what that means? That means according to something we all know. And all the people that would have been involved in the writing and the, all this stuff had physically seen Jesus. They... They saw the resurrection. They witnessed the stuff. And so by their common confession, they all agreed, great is the mystery of godliness. He who is revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Man, I want y'all to sit in, sit in on that for a second. That's a lot of words. I'm going to read this. Jesus came. This is what this says. This is what I want you to have assurance in. Jesus came, walked perfectly by the power of the Spirit, was proclaimed by God in the Spirit, was seen by angelic beings and witnessed by angelic beings even before his birth, was given his life, gave a demonstration of his deity, and as such fostered acceptance of his message. And that was that he was resurrected into heaven where he now sits at the right hand of God making intercession for us. That's what we can know. And because we know that, we can walk encouraged. We can walk in the unity of love and truly grab a hold of how much God has accomplished on our behalf so that we could know these things. Amen. So I'm just going to say, I think these things prove Paul's heart for the Colossians. Let them be things that prove our heart to God and to one another. Amen.